UX Podcast is funded by James and myself, together with any contributions we can get from you, our listeners. You can contribute any amount you'd like, whenever you like, by visiting uxpodcast.com slash support. UX Podcast Episode 247. Hello, I'm Pat Axpulma. And I'm James Royal Lawson. And this is UX Podcast. We are in Stockholm, Sweden, and you're listening in 195 countries all over the world from Andorra to India. Sid Harrell is a UX researcher and product manager who got hooked on civic tech at early 2010s hackathons. Sid has helped US city, county, federal, and state agencies unlock the power of technology to serve constituents. She's worked with organizations like the Center for Civic Design, Code for America, and 18F. Plus, she's been a guest with us before, two years ago. She talked to us in episode 194 and uh, shared some great tips on how to carry out successful user research. And I've I've actually uh, pointed people to that episode quite often. It's actually part of our... um, um, our Introduction to UX um, playlist. Oh, yeah. Which is actually not called that. It's called something else. Um, It is called Getting Started in UX. We have as a playlist on Spotify with uh, 20-odd selected episodes that we think are good if you're just getting into all this stuff we talk about. And that will be in the show notes. It will be now. Um, Sid, though, um, she has recently released a book, A Civic Technologist's Practice Guide. A friendly guide for technology people who work or want to work in the public sector. And also, remember to stay with us, because after our chat to Sid, we have our post-interview reflections. You know, when you said remember, I thought you were going to end the show. (laughs) (laughs) So did you actually write the entire book during lockdown? Uh, No. I started it in January. Um, Still January. Yes. So uh, there's a bit of a story there. I I actually had a a cocktail with Erica Hall right before the holidays last year. And uh, I was sort of raving to her that people kept asking me to write a book and I couldn't imagine actually doing it. Um, What would would I be able to write about that people would want? Um, And she told me about this book that she's writing. to kind of try and shift something in the design world. And all of a sudden the pieces fell into place that I could potentially write a sort of a grounding document for civic tech. And I thought, oh, that's something I could do, you know, rather than a a really, you know, one more take on UX research when she and Dana and others have done such a good job or um, a sort of critique book about civic tech, I could write an onboarding guide. And I was so excited that I, I actually got out my phone in the taxi going home and got out Google Docs mobile and typed up an outline with my thumbs. Oh, wow. And I got home and I told my husband, I said, you know what? I think I figured it out. Um, I think I figured out a book I want to write. And he looked at it and he said, well, this is a really good idea. And you know what? You better get that done before the election. Mm. And I said, oh, you're absolutely right. Because if the Democrats win... We're going to see a rush into civic tech in America, I think. 
um, because there's going to be an awful lot of restoration and rebuilding and Mm -hmm. excitement about Mm -hmm. the public sector again. Uh, If the Democrats lose at the national level, my guess is there's going to be a bit of a rush into state level tech. And, you know, it'll be quite interesting to see what states like California, where I live, Mm. do in that situation. Yeah, so, I guess also there'll be degree of um, the degree of kind of defense of the tech. Yes. In certain scenarios. Yes. Yes. And so I, I had a deadline. <laughs> so well, I yeah. right. started writing January eighth, um, and uh, the pandemic in San Francisco started, you know, circling around in February. There was this ship off the coast that um, had a, a group of people who had been exposed and some were infected. Um, So we started hearing pretty early from our mayor that lockdown was likely. (laughs) And we went in, I think, on March 16th. And uh, I was not quite halfway done with the first draft, I think. Wow. I mean, to me, that's amazing. And and a testament to what an expert you are in this field, really. Uh, But so... But but, but I just want to say, though, Pat, I mean, that's that's a wonderful example, though, of having um, clear vision and... A exactly. strong deadline, yeah. and then and then combined to that, you had an unfortunate, fortunate opportunity in in maybe lockdown that actually mm. gave you the space to to do it. So, kind of the serendipity, the three things combining mm. there is really really interesting. <laughs> I mean, you're right. I didn't have a lot of uh, weekend plans in March and April, mm. which was I I had um, contracted with my editor to start on May first, so that was really the draft had to be finished and the chapters had to be through their first reviews by May 1st. And also the conversation that instigated it all. I mean, just knowing and realizing that you need your allies to find your your path. Yes, so much. And your structure, yeah. Yeah. I just wanna uh, just clear out this word. That Because, I mean, UX Podcast is an international podcast. And yes. I mean, I don't think I used this word too much even before we interviewed you and Dana Chisnell. Uh, civic, what does civic tech mean? Civic tech means, uh, in the U.S. in particular, I, I think it is a bit American-centric, although many people in the U.K. and Australia would recognize it too. Um, it's the idea that we should bring the best of tech from the private sector And you can think of that a number of ways, whether it's people or practices or actual technologies to the public sector, and that we should have public digital goods that are as good as the goods we can purchase. Um, So your government website where maybe you register to vote or register your car or, you know, pay your tax should be just as good as what you experience when you go on a social network or an e-commerce site Mm. and all of the mechanisms to do that. So you, you differentiate then between like public sector tech and civic tech. Civic oh. tech, I think, has an explicit connotation of improvement. I think government tech is more inclusive. Um, and I, I chose civic tech specifically because I was trying in the book to speak to the people um, who want to improve the situation of government tech. Um, in the US, uh, definitely in the UK, in a lot of larger countries, you have these heavy procurement infrastructures and a lot of bureaucracy in a national level government, certainly. And then sometimes in local government, you have low capacity. So the existing government tech may not be everything that people hope from public digital goods. And civic tech explicitly takes a perspective that people from the private sector 
or people who have private sector expertise and experience in tech have a role to play in improving that alongside the public servants who have chosen government tech as a career from the beginning. So it's almost like the activist word for public sector is like the person who wants to make real change. The person wants to make real change. And, and one thing that, yeah. that many yeah. people claim for it is it's not just government tech. So it can be technology for mutual aid um, or for people, oh, yeah. right, without the participation of a government mm. who mm. want to have a better um, mm. interaction as a community or something mm. like that. Exactly. A community mm. tech, I guess, is all these yes. <laughs> different kind of ways of slicing <laughs> right. it all up. Public interest tech is another one um, that tends to get used by... Yes. Academics have switched over from e-government mm. to public interest tech, I think. Mm. <laughs> They may not be the same mm. thing, but... And now for for any listeners thinking that, that it, it's sort of specific to the U.S., I can say, having worked almost 10 years now with the National Health Services in, in Sweden, this book really made me feel seen and made me feel oh, heard. That <laughs> I, makes no, me I so really happy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I really understood stuff and was able to now... Uh, find the vocabulary for explaining stuff to other people because what usually happens when you get into the space after having worked with the commercial sectors for so long is that you th go in and you think I'm going to change everything I mean and now I, I have so much experience <laughs> and then you hit a wall and you realize oh it's so different right. it's so very very different things are the way they are for reasons actually <laughs> yes <laughs> we still want to change them but yeah if we don't know the reasons mm. we can't just come in and say all right we're going to do agile and <laughs> Yeah, exactly. What's well, interesting mm. there, Pat, though, is, is you know when I'm reading through it, I, I, ref, I was reflecting on the fact that in you know I've worked with public sector organizations, but also um, you know large or small Swedish organizations, international organizations, private sector, and in many ways I recognize lots of these aspects from these, especially these big internationals or mm. internationals that I've worked with that they're they're very close to public sector in in many ways in which the oh, the the systems work especially if you're working with the enterprise UX I think because I've done a lot of work yes. with intranets and enterprise UX <laughs> yeah. over the years and when you're dealing with internal systems uh, you can be into a lot of similar issues I think I absolutely agree I think there's a there's an institutional sector that we don't quite know entirely what to call some of it is government some of it is traditional public sector NGOs sometimes you can even think about healthcare or finance or education in some of the same ways but um, the thing that defines an institution for me is that it acts on people not just at scale but over time mm. and that requires a different strategy for improving it, then, you know, some of these apps may last months or years, but if we're talking about making a change in a government or a really significant institution, it's usually decades and often centuries that we're talking about in terms of history and, yeah. you know, types of technological change it's been through in the past. And so it has a natural and appropriate resistance to sort of the ups and downs and fads of commercial technology, and yet... Sometimes uh, a failure, which is often connected to more broad failures of institutional inclusion, right, uh, along class or racial or um, citizenship status lines, but often a failure to meet people where they are um, in terms of the ability to interact with it. And so as we're starting to connect with these, you know, these centuries old institutions using these uh, latest technologies that may have been in place for months or years, like our smartphones, we're really out of sync in terms of the time scale and figuring out how to harmonize technologies, software that we can change. You know, if we 
mess something up, we can change it in a day. We can put out a new application in a matter of months. But the values and the kind of deep um, design values and characteristics of an institution may have been evolving over a really long time. And if we don't think about that, we aren't going to be successful. The change is just going to bounce off. Um, and if we do succeed, it may not really stick and it may not do what we want. Exactly. You have to think long term in, in a whole different way. Yeah. I think when I, when I was reading it again, once again, reflecting on how, how my career has been and the things I've worked with, and some of the, um, some of the, the, the lists you had dotted through the book, um, I was thinking, my word, these are, these are really not just lists that you need to preach to civic <laughs> people. I mean, I think the first one you had was, um, um, was about um, axes of privilege that impact um, yes. the way you, you um, experience the world, I think is the phrase you used. Um, and of course, me and Per, we tick off, I think, every single yeah, one of them. Yeah, I was reading through um, that. Oh, that's me, that's me. Okay, that's me. That's <laughs> right. me. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, we're, right. we're men, we're white, <laughs> we're heterosexual, yeah. we don't have any disabilities. Mm-hmm. And I, I do actually speak Swedish, so um, <laughs> I speak the majority language in my, my area too. So it was a full house there. Um, mm-hmm. But it's, it's something we, I mean, me and Per talk about this mm-hmm. a fair bit. We're, we're quite aware about how um, white, male and privileged we are. Um, which doesn't always make it easier. Um, being aware of it actually sometimes makes it even worse. I think. But <laughs> going back to these, going back to these lists, they're they're really really useful um, general lists that anyone could use in their work and should. Thank you. I mean, you know, I I, I won't hide from you that uh, a side motivation was that after spending the last eight years exclusively in civic tech, I start to think that maybe the way that you can be successful in civic tech is a way that we all ought to think about tech more generally Mm. um, in terms of what we're contributing to and how we go about the work of making new things or better things. My contention is it's more important that they be better than that they be new. Exactly. Yeah. The the focus on actually improving something. Right. Um, Rather than just innovating it. Exactly. And thinking you always can come in with the tools that you will have always used uh, I love the examples you have of, well, you're using Slack, you're using Google Docs, and you, you come in and you expect to be able to use all those tools that you usually do. Yes. And you, again, you hit that wall and you realize, okay, I'm not allowed to. But then for me, that's sort of what UX is about. I have to adapt because that is my role. That is what I do because I am the mediator. I'm supposed to be able to adapt. Uh, so unless I'm able to do that, I won't be able to work in this space. I think that's right. And I think it's often easier for designers who see themselves that way, Um, you know, to say, oh, I need to meet my uh, government, you know, career staff partners where they are. That is something that feels very uh, aligned to somebody who practices UX in that way. Um, Not always to every other discipline and depends on the person. Um, But it can be tricky if you are really invested in a tool set that you've curated and you've put together and it really feels right to you and it gives you your maximum efficiency to say, okay, I can't have any of this and I can't get it from my partners inside of a year and a half or something. So how do I shift my practice over to these tools that are maybe maybe third or fourth best, maybe, um, and see if I can identify the things that are really important rather than the tools? So. You know, it's not so much Google Docs, it's the fact that we can easily, in real time, co-edit a document. Can I use the 
less good Microsoft um, Word. And uh, yeah, so, you know, can I choose to use that? Um, can I figure out, you know, how to communicate if I don't have Slack? Can I create some email groups and make that kind of flowing communication accessible? Um, it forces you to identify what's really important about it, which, of course, as a UX person, I also think is fascinating. Mm. So it's not really the emojis in Slack, although those are fun. (laughs) (laughs) You you mentioned at one point in the book about um, uh, to do with um, service delivery, civic service service delivery and and interfaces, that adoption is really important and that um, the the key um, there is that the the new thing you're doing has to be better than the current interface. Yeah, to succeed, which, I mean, yeah, absolutely. But it, it started to make me, you know, when I was thinking about other mechanisms like the procurement and, and yeah. you know, the understanding your organization and getting the buy-in and all these kind of stuff that take time and effort, energy. Um, yeah, how do you, how do you measure? Because, like, you know, if you've got to that point of, of having it in place, that's when you're going to know whether it's succeeded. So how do you go about measuring that the future thing you're trying to lobby for and to put into place is going to be better than the current interface or current thing. So I think uh, we lean a lot on prototypes in civic tech, um, partly because uh, often folks who have worked in big institutions that tend to do big procurements don't have a lot of experience of even seeing something, a throwaway thing built fast. And so we made it, oh, we tested it in one session and people just couldn't work with this part we changed it and we came back tomorrow with something else, that reality can sort of transform someone's understanding of what technology can do and how empowered they can be to work with technology if they have access to the right tools. Um, So it's very much a show, you know, let's do a small pilot and then figuring out how to do the pilot in an inclusive way. So once again, it's not we embed our privileges, me as a white abled woman saying like, oh, we're not going to worry about Spanish for, you know, a while, leave that to later in California. That's not really okay. But if we can do a quick small prototype in English and Spanish and test it with people, um, then we have a really good look at how we're doing in our majority language. The Canadian federal government actually has such an advanced and beautiful bilingual practice. Um, They're one of my favorite groups out there. Um, And uh, I'm going to forget the guy's name. I might be able to find the thread later. But somebody posted on Twitter last year that um, one of their web groups had decided that they were going to have a norm that you could speak whichever language you felt most comfortable in. And if your colleagues who felt more comfortable in the other language um, couldn't quite get it, then they could ask questions in their own language. But there is a strong enough pressure on bilingual competency in Canada that it really works. And I wish we had that in California. Um, I don't I'm not actually a Spanish speaker, and I feel that deficit a lot. So. <laughs> so use of prototypes, I mean, that's very, it's like, it's a very, I suppose, agile way of working in that sense. That, um, but um, do you, do you risk then that you get stuck on an iteration? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Um, and you can get stuck at a, uh, a low maturity stage where something isn't, hasn't been made robust, but has been pushed out for a big test budget cycle happens, administration change happens, something happens, and nothing further gets funded. But it's kind of useful to people already, so it stays in place. Um, 
And so I love the use of prototypes, but I also like to think about them as a promise in a way that a prototype is a promise and it's kind of okay in a high resource private sector environment to say, okay, we're going to make this and then we're just going to throw it away. People have another option, you know, everything will be okay. Um, it's more complicated in a lower resource public sector environment because uh, you're saying, hey, look at this better world we could all have. But actually, mm. if we haven't figured out all that work to, you know, to improve the back end systems to make sure that this nice web front end actually has something driving it, to change the policies if they need to be changed, um, to, you know, procure a more modern hosting solution, perhaps, to help people set up a release cycle, all that stuff, if you haven't done it, then this better world you've shown people kind of loses its promise. So, how would, I mean, that must take some managing or training. To how would you deal with the situation that you're you're someone who uh, been involved in civics that you're going to have that drive? You've you've realised a thing that you want to really push for. <laughs> you've got yeah. as far as funding and a prototype, and it's now going to get put on a shelf, or you're going to throw it away. I mean, how how do you manage that aspect of it? It must be tough. Yeah, it sucks. <laughs> I think everyone who's been in this a while has some scars. Um, and uh, one of the things I think is really important is community um, and taking care of each other and taking care of ourselves. Uh, I think I say somewhere in the book that you will lose um, and not just little battles, oh. but you will have significant losses and things that don't work out. And I've got a couple projects I could talk about that would still raise my heart rate, but uh, the way to turn those to good, I think, is to talk about them and write about them and figure out what happened, retrospective work that then gets shared with the larger community and lets us all build a little further. In some ways, that was a big motive for the book um, was to, um, well, let me back up. Uh, I went to an informal conference a couple of years ago called the Union of Concerned Government Technologists. It was an American conference. It was kind oh, wow. of secret invitational thing. Um, and there was a session that I attended called Let's Make New Mistakes. And I was really heavily uh, struck by that session, with the idea that we keep bringing new people into the field. We keep having new people start with a different government and running up against the same problems and what can we do as a field to you know, consolidate the learnings from all those stories and figure out a few things so that we can get on to making the next set of mistakes that are hopefully a little more advanced <laughs> and a little uh, less, you know, brutally harmful. Well, I, I can attest to that because I've, I've killed a lot of prototypes uh, uh, over the past years. Yeah. And I think, and but I, I continue to stay on, I think, because <laughs> it's, it's important for me to keep telling the stories of those yes. uh, killed prototypes, uh, because that helps people understand going forward. So what things have we learned and what, what can we do differently? But that also dovetails with the things you, you wrote about, about risk, because that's also something we hear a lot in the tech space, that it's good to take risks. It's good to fail even, because that means... Uh, you're learning something <laughs> whereas in, in in the civic space then it, it's problematic because it's taxpayer money <laughs> and <laughs> at, at a starting point sometimes all... it's really important things about people's lives 
Yes, it's life critical. It's it's especially in healthcare, but I mean, all, most of uh, most civic tech is, is life critical in some way. Mm. It could be yeah. even democracy at the center yes. of it. Democracy critical. Exactly. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. So failure has a different cast, um, mm. and you know, little tests failing, prototype failing, not that big a deal, but something significant failing can cause serious harm. And on a smaller scale can wreck careers. Mm. Um, that doesn't usually happen to Silicon Valley technologists, right? You have a big failure, you write a good blog post about it, everybody loves you, you get hired again. That doesn't happen with um, agency heads and CIOs necessarily in the same way. So there, there is a career risk that is very different from private sector tech. When I was chief of staff of 18F, I actually had to buy professional liability insurance in case the agency was investigated or sued because I could be personally because named. you were exposed to a personal risk yes. um, through that employment. Yes. It's all, oh, wow. I'm always, always learning new things about America and getting surprised <laughs> about how it works. You know, it's... <laughs> So many of our founding stories um, actually have to do with litigation. <laughs> for all the Americans out there, that, that Stamp Act that we talk about as one of the triggers for the revolution was about seals stamped on lawsuits um, because the colonists were suing the heck out of each other. Oh, wow. And that was one of the taxations from King George that they really objected to was paying extra for lawsuits. But yes, uh, <laughs> so... so there, there's that, you know, there's that kind of personal risk, and then there, there's risk of doing real harm. Um, we've seen uh, with the pandemic and uh, our crummy systems for unemployment support. Mm. Uh, I worked with Dana actually uh, in June on a study that was intended to just hear the stories of Americans who were trying to access benefits during the pandemic, and they were horrible, difficult you know, stories that people were good enough to share with us uh, of dealing not just with interfaces, but with systems that had not been necessarily designed with people in mind and where they were, where there were those intentions on the part of the officials who designed them, maybe hadn't been implemented in such a way to actually carry out the good intent. And behind that in some states is a policy of not wanting people to access benefits. Um, mm -hmm. And that's actually one of the things I talk about in the book is that you can't fix a policy problem with technology. So, so what, what you're saying that basically is like there are dark patterns being deployed in uh, public service, sector services, digital services. And you're effectively in a position because it's policy. Your 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 arms your hands are tied. You've got to implement effectively, or or you can't do anything about them. Right. Um, huh. The example I talk about in the book is marijuana policy. Right. It's a patchwork of legality here. It's by state. You have some states where it's completely illegal. You have many states where it's legal for medical purposes, and the requirements for getting a card are vary. And then you have some states where it's legal for all purposes. And then in the states where it's legal for all purposes, you have questions about whether we expunge old convictions and people who um, were put on trial and convicted under old marijuana laws. But it doesn't make any sense to proceed 
with uh, a, you know, a great system for requesting to have your record cleared if the policy in your area isn't to clear records. It's sort of like that's an, inter that's an interesting thought experiment, but you won't be able to get anywhere unless the um, state attorney or district attorney in your area has a policy that they wish to remove those criminal records from people's past in these cases. So as I'm playing back our conversation in my head now, I'm realizing that it, we're making it sound as if it's it's a huge struggle. It's real, a real pain to get into civic tech. There are so many <laughs> things to think about. So I want to give you, I want to give you a minute to tell us why you should still get why into it. Because why is this? why is it so rewarding? Um, because you do actually get to work on things and improve things that are life critical. So, mm. you know, making it easier for people to get public benefits. Uh, making it easier for people to communicate with their elected representatives, making it easier for communities to work together after a disaster, uh, making it easier for people to do participatory planning. There's a really cool uh, civic tech project that actually started at a hackathon many years ago. It's called streetmix.net, and I think you can access it anywhere. It's totally free, and it's a drag-and-drop street design tool. And what people can do with it is design a street they like, and bring it to a public meeting. They can print it out. And it sort of puts them on a footing with professionals who have all these tools to draw to say, well, this is this is how I would like the streets in my community to be designed. Mm. Um, so, uh, and that, without ever having a paid staff member, has, uh, I believe, had something like 100,000 plans um, made and printed on the system. and really started to change some of the power dynamics in community meetings around that. That's really cool. <laughs> I geek out about changes like that. And um, even though it's not always easy, um, you know, I'm working now with the California courts, working on digital services for people who go to court without a lawyer. It's tough. But on the other hand, if you sit in a few courtrooms and see the kinds of reasons that people are in court and what they're facing and, and, how important that judicial branch of government is to democracy, it's very, very motivating to work on it. You do need the posse that we have, though, <laughs> for sure. You need your friends. Yes. So reflecting what you're saying, so that it, it, all this gives you the chance to work with the, I guess, the building blocks of a good society. Yes. Yes, you put it better than I did. I like that. I'm sorry. That's not. I'm the host of this. I'm not meant to do that. Sorry. Oh no. <laughs> We're just having a conversation. That was a summary. Summary. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, because you know, like we we elect governments. Governments can be crap. Governments can be good. Um, you know, we've we've we got policies we hate or don't like and stuff. We've we've even got maybe neighbours we don't get on with at times and stuff. But at the end of the day, we we all want to live as part of a society. Yes. Um, and community that that makes us feel. Um, happy and safe. Yes, I hope so. Um, <laughs> that's not a given in the U.S. Uh, no. in October 2020, but um, I hope there mm. are enough of us that do that uh, that starts to be a given again in, in time. Yeah, I hope so too. Yeah. So everyone, sh read the book, get inspired, and get into civic tech because uh, you won't regret it, really. Yes, please do. We need more of us. Um, we need lots more of us. And uh, it's a friendly field and so much fun. Thanks for being with us, Ed. My pleasure. So for me, I actually see how Sid's book is useful both 
from a therapeutic perspective in that if you do work in civic tech, you recognize so much and you feel you're not alone and and you remember that, yes, it sometimes is a, is a struggle, but there are reasons for this. Uh, and there's also a reason why you're doing it. And there's so many things that she gives you to think about to actually reflect on why you're doing it and why it's important and what you should focus on as well, which are really fantastic. And of course, the other aspect is if you haven't worked in civic tech before, uh, having all this knowledge wealth that Sid is sharing is so useful. I mean, you'll shave years of learning off um, get it going into civic tech just by reading the book, mm. I think. Or, or perhaps feel less mm. alone, feel less uncomfortable. Yes. Feel like someone's supporting mm. you, even if they're not directly supporting you at the moment, perhaps. Mm. I mean, so I, I, much, yeah. it's, it's really good read. And what I do like as well, I mentioned this briefly in the interview, that this is applicable to more than just civic tech. Um, I'm not completely sure how much Sid realizes that in what she's written, but the, yeah. the these aspects of it, and especially I think some of the um, lists she's got dotted through the book, giving like a summary of things you can do um, in various situations or how you can, you know, checklists. Um, these are, um, okay, maybe sometimes with just a little bit of a rewrite or a, a tweak here and there, but they're completely applicable to almost every type of context mm. and work I've been involved with um, yeah. and possibly you know listeners too so we, the one we said in the show was um, about the privilege and checking you know, your axes of privilege and checking um, how privileged you are and that list was um, oh, are you cisgender male are you white heterosexual do you have any disabilities do you speak the majority language in your region um, great list to start off with um, but there, there are other ones too. The one you can follow on from that and checking, um, basically, if you have got substantial privilege, what can you do um, in order to support underrepresented or under um, or people who are not as privileged as you in the work you're doing and partners mm. and so on. And that's a that's a, a great little list. Um, and um, a further privilege that most of us have just just by knowing tech is that we know about tools, we know how the web works, uh, probably a lot more than the people around us, the stakeholders around us, which means that we can also spend time helping people learn more. Uh, so she actually gives some tips at the end of the book that I think are just wonderful around this. Uh, it, it, she calls them uh, techniques of professional inclusion and, and just holding office hours for people who need to make design decisions. Uh, bringing in speakers for lunch and learns. I mean, I know we do these things within consultancies and usually at agencies you have lunch and learns, but of course it's hugely useful in, in, these, in these contexts as well. And just starting clubs for learning new techniques like web writing and CSS and even sending a weekly, this is something I've done actually, uh, sending a weekly email newsletter to a broad set of project stakeholders, just helping them see what's happening uh, within the space that they are actually working within the tech space. Mm. I mean, just that about kind of like mm. clubs and things about various things. We've got the example of Spotify mm. and their guilds, 
which um, oh, yeah. I know quite a few companies mm-hmm. have, have picked mm-hmm. up picked up on over the mm-hmm. years to which is effectively internal clubs to help um, spread knowledge to to highlight various issues and to maybe um, take action on certain things that people find passion well they get passionate about that which is another one of of um, Sid's lists is the whole thing that when you found an area that excites you um, and being a member of these guilds is possibly a sign that you are. Um, well, uh, excited about something, even if it's not mm. a civic project, tech project you get involved with. Um, but that little list of questions was an excellent way of, of um, reflecting on what you uh, are passionate about and want to work with or are working with. So where where would I act in order to relieve the most pain for users? Where would I act in order to relieve pain and free up capacity for maintainers or the stewards of um, a project? Where would I act to make my changes last? Um, where can I get access and support in order to act? I mean, if you can, if you just, you know, just tweak them a little bit, you can see their usefulness in any kind of organization. Oh, definitely. And it's fun. She didn't mention it on the show, but she she actually refers to it several times through the book. She calls this space space a teenager in the sense that it it has it's not that old, uh, and I think that's important to understanding the space as well and, and being sort of reflective on. This is why some things may feel like a struggle because, of course, we're all learning together. And this book is allowing us to learn a lot faster about what's been going on for the last 15 years. Yeah. And and that aspect of being a teenager is um, something that Lisa Welshman um, used um, in her book, Web oh, yeah. Digital Governance. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's a very similar um, thing that she's been picked up on uh, and Sid's picking up on that. It is a very, very young branch, and a lot of the things that we suffer from um, are a consequence of us, you know, being in those teenage years, um, mm. I guess. Right. We could, I mean, we could do uh, a full episode just on some of the lists, actually. Uh, some <laughs> wonderful stuff to reflect on here. Uh, but there are, if you want to go further now, I mean, check out the show notes, uh, the transcript, of course, as well, it will be found on uxpodcast.com. Uh, and click follow, subscribe, or add if you aren't already doing so, and and join us again for our next episode. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. What's the biggest drawback to voting by mail? I don't know, James. What is the biggest drawback to voting by mail? Postage from Russia costs a fortune. <laughs> <laughs>